0: Please be seated for our Bible readings.
1: The first reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter one, beginning at verse one. It can be found on page 233 of the New Testament section of the church Bible. In this reading, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us of the supremacy and greatness of Jesus Christ. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world's He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, and can be found on page 280 of the New Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, John describes the vision he saw of a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more... And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Shall we pray together? Lord Jesus Christ seated on the throne, we come to you in humility this morning. We pray as I speak your word, you would bring to the thirsty your gift from the spring of the water of life to refresh and sustain us for our life to come. In your name and for your glory. Amen. Let me begin by painting together three pictures, if you like. Here's picture one. The landscape is one we all know. The landscape is, is King Street in St. Helier, And I'm standing in a queue in a shop when I hear this conversation that's going on in front of me between two female teenagers. It was hard for me not to hear this conversation. And the conversation goes a bit like this. They're articulating their fears for the future and how they believe they will be dead by the time they get to my age because of how humanity is, is treating this planet. That's picture one. Here's picture two. It's a week last Monday evening, and I'm driving through the streets of Newcastle into Gateshead. And I'm listening to an interview that's occurred a few weeks ago from the physicist, Professor Brian Cox. I'm sure you might have read one of his books or seen him on TV at some stage. And he's talking about how the world will one day be uninhabitable because of the sun burning out. Now, don't be too alarmed. It will take a while. Scientists reckon it will happen in five billion years. Now to picture three. It's the hope of the new creation as John describes his great vision that he saw 2,000 years ago while banished on this island of Patmos. Maybe you've been there. Of a new heaven and a new earth. And of the one who is making all things new. On this Advent Sunday, if you like, the beginning of the church year, to quote T.S. Eliot, the end is where we must start from. And each of those pictures, if you like, portrays a scenario of when planet Earth as we know it will end. In picture one, if you like, my overheard conversation between two school teenagers, it's a bleak picture, isn't it, that's presented The scenario, if you like, that the COP26 summit was meant to avoid, yet for all the talked-up rhetoric, I fear despondency still prevails for many, particularly the young. It's a reminder now more than ever, if you like, of each of our God-given responsibilities. If you like to represent a righteous God in what Brian was talking to us about a couple of months ago, of those five marks of mission. By doing what is right to safeguard and care for creation, by cultivating, if you like, and guarding this planet. Because it's amazing, isn't it, the difference we can all make? By simple things that we do. You know, simple lifestyle changes in our homes, in our work life, by what we eat, by where we go on holiday. That's picture one. In picture two, if you like, the interview with Brian Cox, it seems almost like a bit of a scene, doesn't it, from a futuristic science fiction film. Almost unimaginable, isn't it, of an era that just seems light years away. Although perhaps we might want to think about Moses' words in the Psalms, which the Apostle Peter took up when he said a thousand years. It's like one day to the Lord. But in both of those pictures, irrespective of the timescale involved, there's almost like little hope for the future, is it? There's almost an inevitability to the outcome, whether it's much quicker or very, very slow. And any hope there is rests upon humanity. In contrast, if we'd look at picture three, this final vision of seven that John sees at the end of time is different. While it still may cause us difficulties with our imagination, and the worst thing we can possibly do is perhaps try and draw a picture of it, it's neither bleak, nor does hope rest upon humanity. And if you like this picture that Emma read for us this morning, it's the best picture we have in the Bible of the great climax, of the, if you like, the great hope of the new creation. So what I'd like us to do this morning, if you like, with the help of Kipling's six honest serving men from his children book, The Elephant's Child, let's kind of gaze at this word picture that John describes of the hope of the new creation. Remember what Kipling wrote? He said this, didn't he? I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who now of those six let me just say right from the start the two that are most not helpful are the how and the when you know you can can read as much as you want on that you can watch as much as you want on YouTube about that never mind anything else subject of much speculation and debate a huge source of revenue for some but I find also foolishness and hurt when rash promises do not come true. If you like to, to quote a famous pop group, go down that road and quite literally, you end on a road to nowhere. The why and the where are more helpful, perhaps more straightforward. Why is there a new creation? Is it not because God will one day restore the, gray, the created order to himself as it was before the fall? As it was in Eden, so it will forever be in the new Eden. And as to where is the new creation, shall we just say, please don't say in heaven? See, as we'll see this morning, the biblical image throughout the scriptures is of a new heaven and a new earth joined together fully and forever. Of those six honest serving men, the two most helpful are who and what. You see, the hope of the new creation is centered upon who? The heart, if you like, of the Christian belief is the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That he brought into existence a new way of living. A new way of life, if you like, with God. Which we can experience now in part as a foretaste of the life that is to come when it will be forever. Any hope of the new creation is founded upon Jesus Christ, the living hope in whom all our hopes are founded. And while we may not know all the details of the future, what we are told is who it is who holds the future. As the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, Jesus Christ The son. How was he described in that passage that Emma read for us from Hebrews? The heir appointed of all things. And through whom the world was created. The reflection of God's glory. Just think about that for a moment. The reflection of God's glory. And the exact imprint of Of God's very being who sustains all things by his powerful word and as the ascended Christ, the writer to the Hebrews leaves us with this picture of Jesus seated on the throne at the right hand of God. And then when we come to this book of Revelation, it's Jesus Christ, isn't it, who's the subject of the book of Revelation? If you like, that's just Revelation 101. If you want a simple way, if you like, to think about the book of Revelation, think it's all about Jesus Christ. He's the subject of the book. If you like, the first three words of the book of Revelation, if you were to read them in the Greek, say these three words, Revelation, Jesus Christ. And the Greek word that we translate Revelation there is the word apocalypsis. Please don't think of some scary and weird scenes from the end of time. That isn't what the word apocalypsis means in Greek. It comes from two Greek words Apo meaning away from and calypsis meaning veil. And so the picture that we're invited to gaze at in the book of Revelation, if you like, is this if you like this pulling away of this curtain. Or a better description would be this unveiling of who Jesus Christ is which takes into account all that's gone before in the previous biblical landscape and provides the final movements, if you like. We could say the final brushstrokes of this wonderful portrait, who in Hebrews we left seated on the throne, and who now in John's vision, while seated on the throne, speaks and is making all things new. Frankly, when we think about it and we just think about these words, they just pale into insignificance. They almost become meaningless, I find, and the best thing almost is to just spend some moments almost basking, almost gazing, almost just marvelling and soaking in the majesty of who Jesus Christ is. On this Advent Sunday, to understand the end... Begin from that image of who Jesus Christ is. And as we bask in who he is, we turn to the what. What is the biblical hope of the new creation? You see, what is John? describing here and let me, just, let me just pick out three things if you like for you, we could pick out a lot more but I'm just going to pick out three for us this morning, you see if we look at it in, in John's vision if you like the, the hope of the new creation is a place of a new heaven and a new earth it's a place where there's no more sea and it's a place when we look at it where God dwells in his home with his people. You see, if I was to do a straw poll, and if I was to go around to chat to each of you one-on-one and say, which book in the Bible do you find the hardest to understand? I think that what those conversations would say would be that Revelation would come top of the list. So here's the best advice I've ever received on how to understand the book of Revelation. To understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand everything that's gone before. In other words, you have to understand the rest of the books of the Bible. Why do I say that? Because there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Of those 404 verses, there are no Old Testament quotes. Take it from me, that's highly unusual that there would be no Old Testament quotes in a New Testament book. But what there are, if you like, is there are 676 references. If you like, we could say allusions that point back towards earlier scripture. If you like, we we could put it in this way. It means that for every verse in the book of Revelation, there's at least one possibly two, allusions or signposts in the symbolism that are pointing us back somewhere else in the Old Testament. And if you like, the picture that we're invited to see is to almost say, it's like this. It's like how they saw it in the Old Testament, but so much more. And so when we think about those three ideas, the new heaven and the new earth, no more sea. And this place where God dwells with his people. What are, if you like, the signposts that we could see in the symbolism of what's going on there? What are, if you like, the things that we might pick out from the Old Testament that will start to give us a clue to what on earth John's thinking about? So if we take the new heaven and the new earth, here's what I would do, basically. Basically. I don't know what you'll be thinking. Maybe when you're thinking, right, he says, I'm going to see a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm thinking, where in the Old Testament might I have heard those words before? Or where might be the symbolism that makes me think? Well, straight away I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking of somewhere in Genesis 1. When we read that God created the heavens and the earth, I'm thinking there, basically, Straight away. But then maybe some of you, maybe more, might be straight away thinking, I want to go to the end of the book of Isaiah. To that great vision where we hear those words that he describes of the new heavens and the new earth. It's not by accident. That John sees in this vision and describes the new heaven and the new earth, that he would not have had Isaiah's vision in mind when he said it. It's not by accident that those first hearers of John's vision would have thought back to Genesis. They'd have thought back to Isaiah. If you like the biblical picture running from Genesis 1 if you like, through to the end of Isaiah, right the way through to the book of Revelation, is heaven and earth existing side by side, being created together and recreated together. The more difficult thing to imagine is what does new mean? You see, does new mean brand new? Does it mean a replacement of this existing earth that we walk and live and breathe on and a new heaven or does it mean a transformation of the existing heaven and earth and so that's for you to ponder on over lunch today to think about and it depends upon how you interpret the Greek word new which is the word kynos and you can go either way by the way basically because the great minds will go either way on it we don't know that's one of the things of mystery but the thing that is not a mystery always new heaven and a new earth but what about then the no more seabed see what does that mean you see many of us live on an island don't we but well, we all live on an island here anyway, don't we? We like the sea, don't we? And so maybe it's causing us a bit of difficulty, John's vision. When he says that there is no more sea. What's he what's he trying to, to hint at? Does he literally mean that there's no water in heaven? You see, what John was describing in his vision was, if you like, a a word picture of this world where what the sea represented in the Bible was no more. You see, if you know your Old Testament, you will know that the sea had these negative connotations. If you like, it was a place hostile to God and the saints. If you, we could say it was the dark force of chaos which threatens God's plan and his people. It's this metaphor For brokenness, a world out of kilter with itself and most of all, God. So, when John describes this vision of seeing no more sea, he's talking about a world of no more storms. And I'm not just thinking of the past 36 hours. No more storms of life. We could say no more tears. He's talking of a world of no more secrets. After all, the sea was this place of mystery. It was this place of separation from God and each other. And now we see a world where even the last great secret, we might want to call it, the last great division of separation, death itself, will be no more. And it's a place of no more suffering. When mourning and crying and pain will be no more. See, if that doesn't bring hope to our hearts, there's one more thing. For me, it's the most significant, actually. Particularly in this context of Advent. And it's this idea of, in the new creation... It's a place where God dwells in his home with his peoples. If you like fulfilling that great covenant promise of, I will be your God and you will be those people. You will be my people. You see, when those first hearers heard John describing this vision of God dwelling with his people, their thoughts immediately would have turned to the Exodus story because the word used for home there the word used for dwell there is the word skenu it can mean to dwell to live with it can also mean this to tabernacle with and immediately John would mention that word tabernacle they would recall the great image of Moses going into the tabernacle to encounter the presence of God. They would think too of the, the temple in Solomon's time, the majestic temple where the presence of God fell when the people gathered and they saw the glory in the midst of his people. They would have seen too that great image of Haggai's prophecy when the people come back from Babylon and they're in this ruins of the temple And they start weeping because what they see is just nothing in comparison to the magnificence of Solomon's building. And then Haggai prophesies and says, will you not see once more the glory of the Lord filling this place in an even greater way? The Hebrew word is the word Shekinah. It was, if you like, the bright cloud which if you like, symbolized God's presence. It kind of meant communion between God and his people. Don't you remember, what was it? When, when Moses, when the people of God, when Moses came back out of the tabernacle, or when he came up from off Mount Sinai, what did they say about him? They said that his face glowed. And Moses only got to see the back of God. Because quite literally, if he'd saw the face of God, it would have killed him. And so, those first hearers have got all those thoughts running through their heads. You could almost imagine them having goosebumps on the back of their neck when they think about the stories of Moses and the glory of the Lord. When they think about the temple and the glory of the temple. But that's not where the significance of the word dwell ends. It's also the same word John would have used 50 years previously. The words we might hear on Christmas Eve. The words we might hear to describe the first coming of Jesus Christ when he says these words and the word became flesh and lived and dwelt and tabernacled or as the message would put it when God pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one who's the exact imprint of God's very being. Because this is what Advent means, doesn't it? It means the arrival. It means the coming of Christ first in the incarnation when God pitched his tent with us to be the saviour of the world, and we have seen his glory. But still, that's not where the end of the significance of the word dwell ends. Because what the pages of the New Testament teaches us is how God wants to tabernacle with each one of us in our hearts, where we too can experience. With the psalmist, you know that song that they they wrote in the 80s, that kind of like they just nicked straight out of the Bible. You know the one that said, "How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? My soul longs and yearns for your courts, and my heart." and flesh they sing for joy to the living God there is nothing in this earth nothing whatsoever that can rival an experience to know the presence of God in your life when he comes and pitches his tent in your heart there's nothing to match the glory if you like, as he brings the gift from the spring of the water of life. Remember the Ready Breck advert from the 70s? I was too young to remember it first time around, but I've seen it on YouTube. You know the one where, where the boy just glows it's what Advent also means, doesn't it? Secondly, it's the coming of the living hope in your life. If you like the presence of His inspiration that He'll bring in just in that moment of fear. If you like the time of joy, of the light that He'll shine in the darkness, or the pleasure of His drink that He'll bring when we are thirsty. Even if for now, you know, within all the rubbish of our lives and all the pain that we go through, that it might just be a foretaste now. It might just be a little moment now. Because the glow of His presence fades. Or oh, what we see, if you like, is this experience in the words of Apostle Paul that we see through a mirror dimly. There will come a day when one day we will stand where Moses could not stand. And see face to face. And that's the significance of the word dwell. When Christ will return, it's what Advent also means. The third coming of Christ when God will dwell with each of us in the new heaven and the new earth as the one who is making all things new. And so all that's left is to pray once more and not miss the moment this Advent of the great Aramaic Advent prayer, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, shall we pray together? As we do that, shall we just as we pray, shall we stand together? Lord Jesus Christ, seated on the throne, and who is still making All things new. You know, as John saw that great vision of the end, so would you just open our eyes this Advent to not miss this moment. Maybe for those who need a new vision of you, that you would just come and bring that now. For those who face so many distractions and disorientations of these times that we just see in our world going crazy once more. Help us not to miss the moment. To pray our Lord come. We pray, come Lord Jesus, into our worlds and reveal your glory. Come, Lord Jesus. May we know the joy of your presence. Come, Lord Jesus, into those places in our life. The tears, the pain, the mourning, the death. Come, Lord Jesus, to the thirsty. And bring your precious water of life so we may never thirst again. But you are seated on that throne, the Alpha and the Omega, our end and our beginning, the world's end and its beginning. In your name and for your glory.
1: Amen.